Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall just for what I did well. Hello world, this is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, uh, your favourite cricket podcast I'm going to go out on a limb and say because <laughs> you can't actually talk back to us about it at this point in time. We have so much on the show today. We have so much. I, I've got a long list in front of me. I can't even remember what's on it. I don't even know if I'll get to the end of the list before the show finishes. The two biggest bits of news to start off the show. On the show today, Ebony Rainford-Brent, uh, former England international, the first black woman to play for England. She's on the board at Surrey. She's one of the favourite commentators on Test Match Special in the UK and she sat down for a long chat with us about her life but, and also about the program that she's launching with Surrey to get more Afro-Caribbean kids into cricket and to provide a pathway into cricket for them. It ended up being one of the most fascinating chats we've had. The other huge bit of news, Adam, and I see a broad smile break across your face as I approach this. Seabus, they're back, baby. They're back. You heard it. You heard the jingle. You heard the hi-ho, hi-ho music, and you thought, what's that? What's that? Is it the World Cup all over again? The Seabus has just pulled into the parking lot, uh, popped on the handbrake, and it's putting passengers on board. 
Hello, Jeff. I'm so happy we're back on the sea bus, and I'm so happy it's uh, on the episode where we've got Ebs on the show. Um, as you'll learn when you listen to the interview, she's a wonderful human being. I knew it was going to be a good interview, uh, and I'm just thrilled that um, we were able to sort of uh, get one of the busiest people in cricket uh, alone for an hour and, and spend uh, as much time as we could um, talking about her wonderful life. But the sea bus, uh, we're back on the sea bus. As listeners to the show from the World Cup and Ashes would remember from last mm-hmm. year, they were integral to the. Uh, to the daily podcast that we did, the 15-minute, 20-minute hits we were doing each day. And, and a lot of our listeners from, from overseas, in other words, not from Australia, I suppose, because I say overseas, it's a global podcast, but in Australia, you'd be familiar with the with the Seabus mm. brand and advertising, of course, not so much in, in different parts of the cricketing universe. And as a consequence, a lot of people took a, a while to, to work out what it might be, and they thought it might literally be a sea bus. A bus that goes in the sea. That's 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 called a boat. That's called a boat, people. Like, they've got a word for that already. We didn't need to make up a new one. Um, but, but in fact, it's, what is it? The Construction and construction and Builders uh, Union Superannuation? Yeah, so it, essentially the Construction Centre's uh, Construction Sector and Allied Sector uh, Superannuation Fund, but a lot more than that. And as you'll learn over the, the coming weeks and months as we work again with CBUS and proudly so, um, all the, uh, you know, as we talked about in the World Cup and Ashes a lot, there's a dedicated group of experts ready to take your call to talk about super strategy uh, certified financial advisors to help you achieve your goals we had some nerd pledge stuff in from CBUS last year as well Jeff yeah they've, they've um, dug into their cricket numbers and, and tried to find some links between the uh, 9.29% <laughs> that is their average annual return for their default investment option over the last 34 <laughs> years um, oh, it's, it's beautiful stuff of course you should always remember that uh, past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance performance and to consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. But it, it's hard to get an advertiser that's actually a decent, respectable industry these days because, you know, the, the cigarette sponsors are gone, the uh, the gambling sponsors are, you know, hopefully on their way out. They're, I'm, I'm sure the alcohol sponsors will be next. And, and then you start to realise, okay, you know, which companies are cranking huge amounts of fossil fuels into their atmosphere and, and, you know, which companies are using terrible cheap overseas labour and all the rest of it. And, and then you go, oh, well, superannuation, it's helping people save up for their lives after retirement. It's it's pretty good on the whole. <laughs> There's nothing terrible there. So, you know, thank God we've we've, we've hopefully got an, an unproblematic sponsor. No, we, we definitely do. And um, as I say, thanks to the guys at CBUS for getting back on board with the final word. And a great episode to do so. You mentioned we've got tons of stuff on the show. We'll do a lot of that in the back end after we've talked to Ebony. There's cricket, obviously, in South Africa at the moment, in Australia, both men's and women's, domestic, international. Uh, an interesting fixture this week coming up in Pakistan. Uh, Bangladesh returning to test matches there for the first time since 2003. Uh, there's been test cricket in Zimbabwe uh, over the last couple of weeks we neglected to mention. But, Jeff, before we get to all of that and, and Ebony, and and I should add, sorry, I, I neglected to mention that next week we'll be back with our World War II um, reference yeah. point. I, I don't want to sort of over-promise that we don't have everything in the show today. The the new segment from Jeff will be next week. Uh, the Daniel Norcross yeah. segment will be back next week as well. And and maybe I won't be here next week because we're now past 39 weeks pregnant. But, you know, it, it, Jeff definitely will be. That's what I needed to know, though, Adam, because, yes, so Statman's been pushed back, <laughs> as you say. Norcross will be back. But baby update, please, um, please lay it well, on. Well, you us. can probably see behind me that I'm now using the breastfeeding pillow to prop myself up while I'm doing the, doing the final <laughs> words. So uh, thanks to Rach for buying a product that I can um, help use mm. for my 
professional life, and, and also um, as uh, you, as you extrude the milk of your that, cricket creativity. That, that's that's um, exactly right. In into the in, into the drink bottle of the podcast form, uh, in order for our <laughs> audience to to nourish themselves from it later. Uh, it's a, maybe a disturbing image, but go with it. Yeah, the colostrum of podcasts. Uh, the uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a word I didn't know existed until two months ago. This is what happens in antenatal classes. You learn about a lot of things about the human body you had not a clue about before. Um, I, I thought the colostrum was where the Romans ran around with the chariots and whatnot. <laughs> no, that's the Colosseum. Uh, <laughs> 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 ah, uh, I, I thought about you last night, Jeff. So at this last stage of pregnancy, there's a lot of um, odd mm. jobs and, you know, preparing everything for the baby's mm-hmm. arrival and sort of preparing ourselves emotionally for what's yep. about the change but also a lot of sitting on the couch and relaxation time because Rach can spend about 20 minutes on her feet before she wants to fucking kill me so um, so last night we sat down to, to indulge in the, in the Taylor Swift documentary on Netflix and I know you're a, and I thought of you Jeff being the most prominent Swifty I know you're going to really mm. really enjoy that 85 minutes of television so a recommendation for you there well, definitely the most prominent in height terms. Um, when I, I ended up in a, a VIP area with about 300, maybe 14-year-old girls who were all clocking about 4 foot 11, and then there was me. I was like, I've got a very good view from here at least. I can see the stage, no problems at all. Yeah, yeah, it's good telly. But we've got something important to talk about. One thing. One we've thing, got well, one yeah, thing um, before we get into the show, because we can't leave this to the end. The final <laughs> word cannot leave this to the end, Adam. Well, we can't no, leave this if we had to put this in pop here, we would have copped a lashing and rightly so so yeah. we, we missed the 19s world cup last week we, we neglected to mention by half an hour uh, that jake fraser mcgurk got scratched by a monkey was it was that why he missed a- <laughs> he got, got attacked by a monkey player sent home from tour after being attacked by a monkey now a that makes him patient zero in like peter one of those ancient peter jackson zombie movies because you know you know that he's going to suddenly start coming after people with a cricket bat or something but just just the headline of australian cricketer attacked by a monkey it, it's beautiful it's it's very much in our area. I feel it's, it'll it's have a to get into word injury. Well, we, I mean, it's the best cricket injury. Well, like there've been quite a few bizarre ones, but that's it now. Well, that's the top of the pot. The rarities and oddities section of the Wisden Almanac surely will include Young Fraser mm. uh, uh, this year. It may not quite get into this edition, but I assure you, we'll insist on it when we talk to Lawrence Booth yep. when the uh, Almanac comes out in, in April this year. But another thing that I'm sure we'll get a mention in the Wisden Almanac mm. this year, due to the um, the Indian Premier League last year and, and what's happened here at the 19s World Cup is running out the non-striker. We had the Vinu Mancat Appreciation Hour um, last April, uh, one of our most ever downloaded episodes. Funny that. Uh, and, uh, and and look, we're back there again. Uh, the, the, the non-striker has been run out. Uh, Mancat's name has been all over the cricket headlines. Everybody has themselves a take on the basis of what Nur Ahmed from the Afghani under-19 side uh, did as the bowler in turn, uh, running out the Pakistan batsman Mohammed Herrera. Uh, and Jeff, as usual, all fucking hell broke loose. <laughs> well, the same thing happened. I, I think, A, God bless the under-19 World Cup because it, it's it's given us a, a wealth oh, yeah. of riches in terms of running out non-striker. Chemo Paul, of course. Chemo Paul. Yeah. You know, they, they, I like to think that players at the Under-19 World Cup, they're not afraid yet. They haven't been beaten into submission by orthodoxy and conformity. And they say, no, no, fuck it. We'll do things our way. And and good on them for that. You know, live live while you can, Noor Ahmed. So, uh, 
But what happened is exactly the same thing that always happens, which is, one, there's a run out of the non-striker, two, a few people start talking about it, three, all of the really unimaginative and boring cricket publications pop up a tweet with a video link and say, ooh, what are your thoughts on this? <laughs> Guess what? They're the same fucking thoughts as they were every other time. <laughs> Everyone is going to have the same opinion and say the same thing, and the people who are saying, oh, that's very unsporting and it shouldn't be done, will continue to say it, and it will continue to not make sense because it's in the laws that says it can happen and says it should happen so that the non-striker can't be randomly wandering out of their crease whenever they feel like it. Yeah. The, the fact that we have to keep banging on about this every time. Jimmy Anderson hopped on Twitter and said, oh, MCC, please sort this out. Open brackets, remove the law, close brackets. It's not going to happen, Jimmy. They're not taking it away. They've recently changed the laws to make it more possible, to make it easier to run out the non-striker, to make it clearer that that was a legitimate thing to do. The only thing they need to do is maybe tweak it to, to be specific about the point of delivery, about uh, the point where the, where the bowler's arm is at the top of the delivery motion. But that is all that needs to happen. It's there. If you don't want to get run out, stay in your crease. That's it. That's the end of the story. Doesn't matter. We don't need to do it again. Yeah, uh, uh, we don't. But it's interesting. I mean, the legitimisation um, point there, I think that that mm. is gathering steam. But at the yeah. same time as that, I reckon there are people seeing it happen with greater frequency and thinking that it might become a major part of, of international cricket and it naturally mm. recoiling from that. And, and that's a bit I actually do understand. I, I get that people don't want to see non-strikers run out on the reg. I mean, I'd bloody love it, but I get that a lot of pe- the, the vast majority mm. of people aren't you and I. They don't want to see this happening all the time, but equally, they accept that. <laughs> they accept that the uh, the premise of, of the batsman having to, rem- or, or batter if it's in, in women's cricket, needing to remain in their ground be- before the ball's bowled. So, a couple of things here. So, so one, um, yes, there, there were the, the usual range of hot takes, uh, and equally there were there were people arguing that the, the point that we would. So I saw Mitchell Johnson and uh, Jason Gillespie, two former guests of the final word. I should add. I'm not sure whether our influences seep through there, uh, neither here nor there really. But uh, making the the argument on social media that the batsmen should just stay where <laughs> they where they need to be before the balls bowled and and no concern. So the common sense approach. But uh, I, I like Dave Tickner's um, bit on. Um, on Twitter about this. He, he's compared it in the past to the back pass rule in football, which, as I understand it, in the early 90s, it, it was no longer permissible for a defender to pass to the goalkeeper and then for them subsequently to use their hands. So for the first little while after that transition, it was chaos. There were penalties being handed out left, right and centre as goalkeepers mm-hmm. got used to the new normal. And after that period of chaos, you never really ever saw it again. Um, things got mm. uh, things uh, moved on, things adapted and so on. And this is where I yep. reckon the under-19s tournament could play a role in helping this because you, you said before, Jeff, that they've not been... Um, They've not had it beaten into them not to uh, dismiss batsmen this way by that age. I think it's also a cultural thing. So a lot of... Uh, this is in Tim Wigmore and Freddie Wilde's book, I reckon. I reckon this might feature mm-hmm. in there about... Uh, they predict, they forecast into the uh, into the near future that there'll be more running out of the non-striker from teams that... Um, don't have a traditional background in international cricket, and Afghanistan kind of do, but kind of mm. don't. Remember, they've only really been in the in in the, in the discussion for the last ten or fifteen years or thereabouts. Yeah. So maybe it could be 
be the case that the under-19s and countries who haven't got a history of being inside the, the cricketing bubble take the United States, who are now playing international fixtures uh, for the first time. We're going to talk about Thailand a lot uh, during the World Women's World T20, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. They've qualified for that tournament for the first time. So maybe it'll take these nations in short-form cricket doing mm. it a lot, which will create that chaos where a lot more people are doing it, and then suddenly uh, the, the change of behaviour becomes automatic. Uh, non-strikers stay in their crease until they're meant to stay in their crease, and then we never talk about this again. And I think that would be a good outcome too. Yeah, once the learning curve has straightened out, I suppose. Yeah. And there's one other thing that we maybe haven't discussed before. If you want to hear us talk about this for an hour, you can go back and listen to that earlier episode. But um, <laughs> what, the one thing that's been bugging me a little bit over the last few days it w- was people saying, oh, we don't like running out the non-striker because it, it doesn't require any skill because because the bowler isn't bowling to get the batsman out. They're not dismissing them with mm. the delivery. You know, it, it's, it's cheap and it's easy. It does actually require some skill because it requires the bowler to have the awareness of where the batsman is uh, to be able to execute the run out. Now, that only happens if they've been aware in previous deliveries. You know, you don't just instinctively perform that action the first time that you see it, you must have noticed it as you're bowling previously in the over that this is happening um, repeatedly enough or consistently enough that there is a very good chance that you will dismiss the batsman if you take the bails off. Or having the game awareness, so it's, it's, an, it's an individual... Remember, they talk about T20 cricket being 120 discrete interactions and knowing that mm. by way of looking at the data and looking at the, the camera angles, you might know that on the you know the sixth ball of the penultimate over, if you're trying to get a player on strike, there might be a greater frequency of batters being mm. you know two feet out of the crease when the ball's bowled. You'd know that's a, a possibility of, of running someone out in, in that scenario. So I think yeah. on both fronts it requires skill, and on both fronts it is um, sort of linked to the way the game is played, uh, certainly yeah. at T20 level. But but I think what you see what you see with Noor Ahmed yeah. in this particular case is. He comes into bowl. He doesn't get. Um, he doesn't delay at anything nearly as much as, as Ravi Ashwin did in the one that prompted that earlier discussion. Mm. Um, he darts back and gets the bails off. He appeals to the umpire, and as soon as the umpire signals for the replay, he celebrates because he, he knows knew it was out. That's right. He knows yeah. the batsman's out. So it's not a matter of, t- of of taking a punt. It's a matter of him being that alert to what that batsman was doing and must have been doing before that delivery that he's absolutely positive that that's a dismissal. Yeah. And his teammates do celebrate because he's been sharp enough to affect the dismissal. He's been aware enough to, to affect the dismissal. And none of this none of this bullshit about the um, umpire, I think this might also be Dave Tickner, who's a you know, fully subscribed member of the uh, the man candidate um, uh, fraternity on Twitter, but um, there was none of this bullshit where the umpire went to the captain to withdraw the appeal. You often see that in yeah. these scenarios. You know, you sort of see the umpire's try and head Are you sure? the fielding <laughs> captain knowing the reputational yeah. damage and so forth. And we spoke to um, Fraser Stewart about this from the MCC last year when we had the long episode about this mode of dismissal. Fraser, mm. if you don't know him, he's kind of the boss of the MCC laws. He wrote the new blue book uh, in 2017, which updated the MCC's law to bring it into line with the ICC playing condition. That's another point that's lost in all of this. People are kind of pointing at the MCC and saying that, well, if you didn't change the law a couple of years ago, we wouldn't be seeing this. Well, no, that's not right either because the ICC 
at a professional level and, and the cricket we watch on television has been overseen mm. by this playing condition since 2011 when third umpire started adjudicating front foot no ball. So the backstory here is that we kept seeing the front foot being checked uh, retrospectively for no balls when going through the DRS process or when the umpire just sends it upstairs. And we were seeing players, and Alistair Cook's the, 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 uh, the example usually used. The gold standard. The gold standard, <laughs> a metre out of their crease. And, and, I'm, and I'm not trying to accuse Alistair Cook of um, you know, trying to claim an unfair advantage. I think it's mostly absent-minded um, walking, just, you know, you, you get into a well, routine. So you've never habit. been challenged in doing it before. That's right. So, but he did, it was obvious in that 10-11 Ashes series, whenever they looked upstairs and Cook was at the non-strikers end, he was a, a long way out of his ground. So all the MCC did was, was bring it into line so that recreational cricket, the stuff that you and I play on a Saturday or a Sunday, is the same and, and, and overseen by the same specifications as what you see on the television. So that ambiguity was removed mm. in, in 2017. And, and Fraser explained that to us uh, as, I guess, the, one, of the, one, of the, um, one of the experts on the laws. And as I say, he's been writing these things for the last 20 years. Well, we could go on about this for much longer, but we can't because we have way too much to do in this episode. <laughs> Very quickly, before we get to our interview, we're going to have a tiny lightning round of Nerd Pledge, yes. uh, the game that we play with patrons on our patron page, the people who throw the coins in the tin to keep the podcast going week to week. And what they do is send uh, an amount of dollars and cents that correlates to a cricket number, and we have to work out what it is. Alex Velianovsky is our first Nerd Pledger today. Alex Velianovsky. One forty nine. Now it's nice when I get one that I think I know immediately, um, and there are a couple today. And one forty nine, surely. I mean, odds are has to be Adam Gilchrist. One forty nine, not out in Hobart in nineteen ninety nine. The one that makes you furious yeah. because <laughs> because he didn't get his one fifty because he ran the single before the ball, the ball reached the another bench. another where, another place where the MCC have fixed the laws since in the last twenty years. In that era, if you if you cross for your single before the ball ran into the boundary, you only got credited with one run when there was. A, when there was a run to win and of course Gilchrist strikes a boundary on, on 148 to bring up the victory but only ends up with 149 but yes of course that, and I love the fact you immediately instinctively know that that's something that I hate <laughs> we spend a lot of time together um, I, if you don't know me by now if you don't know you me you will never ever ever know me no, you won't. Um, I know you. I, I just want to throw one more up. Um, one four nine's also that uh, Bob Warmer. So in seventy five, so uh, in set last test of the seventy five Ashes series, when Warmer made mm. the slowest century for England against Australia in England, I think it was something like. 490 minutes or something ridiculous. Um, in the end, God. and and in the end, it denied Australia victory because it meant that they were chasing, they were following on England at the time, and they had to ch and Australia had like 190 left or whatever it was, and didn't have time to chase it down on on the fifth day. So that was the the David Steele um, bank clerk went to war. Uh, Ashes. Australia still won mm. that. I should add one nil, but. Um, even so, uh, Bob Woolmer uh, is someone I've been looking at and researching quite a bit recently, so it jumped out at me. Um, of course, uh, uh, such a, a pioneering uh, coach and innovator mm. uh, with the South African side who tragically um, died at, at the 2007 World Cup. But I, I see a Woolmer opportunity. I'm, I'm not going to miss it. So mm. it could be good, Chris. It could be Woolmer. It also could be Chris Tavare. It was his highest scoring test cricket, although not a very popular person in Australia, Tavare. So I doubt it's going to be him. So um, probably yeah. Gilchrist, <laughs> but, but a nod towards Bob Warmer. Yeah, Bob Warmer. You still hear him talked about very warmly in, in Pakistan as well. Yeah. Um, he's well-loved in that part of the world. So thank you, Alex Valianovsky. We're going to... Uh, well, we've gone with our guesses. You can let us know. Dave Garner has come through with two 
$2.59 and uh, I did not need to check anything to try to figure out what two fifty nine <laughs> is because it's in Jason Gillespie's Twitter handle, um, Dizzy259. Shouldn't he really change his Twitter wickets. handle to Dizzy201, I wonder? Mm, well, I think he still has to notionally be prouder of the wickets <laughs> than the runs. It, it was originally Dizzy YCCC when he was at Yorkshire, That's right, yeah. um, but but it's now Dizzy two five nine. You know, I, I keep tabs on these things. Don't you worry. So it, it's got to be that. Um, although I did for a moment wonder whether Dave Garner is a big Glenn Turner fan. Yep. Glenn Turner in Georgetown made two fifty nine yep. against the Windies. I um, reckon the New Zealand batsman. I know. I know a Dave Garner, uh, and I wonder mm. whether it is an old colleague of mine is in here, which would suggest that it's more likely to be um, Jason Gillespie than it is Glenn Turner. It's also mm. actually what England was set to win <laughs> their one-day international yesterday. Um, that was the, yeah, sorry, rather, South Africa was set 259 to win, although if in order for it to have reached uh, uh, us doing their pledge today, it's unlikely it relates to an insignificant one-day that was played in Cape Town midweek at the back of a, a long tour. So I'm, I'm going to guess that, uh, well, I'm not going to guess, I'm going to say with authority that it's Jason Gillespie. Could you... It, if you had a cricket theme tribute band to Barkman Turner Overdrive, could it be Glenn Turner Cover Drive? <laughs> it was certainly. Well, maybe when we're finished doing this, Jeff. I mean, we've got a few things to do when we finish doing the final, where whenever it is, we've obviously got to do the, the mm. sliders recap, the episode by episode yep. um, podcast. I wonder what year we should do that on, by the way. Uh, I wonder whether this could be something we could do. Um, uh, yeah. We could pick a quiet cricketing year, and not that there really is a quick, quiet cricketing year, and, and do that spin-off. But, but maybe after that, we can um, turn our mm-hmm. turn our attention to starting a band. I don't know; it's not too late. And the third one coming in, uh, thank you, Dave. The third one coming in from Graham B. It is is an edit. Um, some people have been shifting their numbers around, and he's done that. And we encourage that as long as it means they're shifting upwards, um, which <laughs> this has. Five five ninety one is Graham B's new number. Five dollars ninety one, which I'm going. Well, look, I'm guessing it's a five for ninety one uh, bowling figures. Yeah. However, you you have a different theory. Well, I only I just add that it's Freddie Flintoff's cap number, mm. so it could be that. I also found a quirky one that um. It's the amount of runs that Marcus North conceded as a bowler in Test cricket. <laughs> um, probably not I that. Like that. Let's, that's suitably niche. <laughs> I'm going to guess. I mean, Graham. Graham. I, I tend to think there are more English Grahams than there are Australian Grahams. Yeah. I know there are lots of Australian Grahams, but it just seems like is I'm guessing spell, that it's the spelling, isn't it? I mean, it's. it's in, in this case, G-R-A-H-A-M, that feels like the more yeah. British way, whereas a G-R-A-E-M-E yeah. feels more Australian, possibly. Although, funnily enough, um, the player who I'm about to reference is an EME who's British. Um, but there's, a, there's still a Graham. There's another Graham who, who has a, an important performance for England. Graham Swan, 5 for 91 at Adelaide in 2010 oh, yeah. when England won. And, and so that that's my suspicion, is that that's the way it's going. It, it's, it's an England supporting kind of 5 for 91. Yeah. And then funnily enough, there's a little quirk there. Chris Silverwood, current England coach, 5 for 91 against South Africa in Cape Town in January 2000. That might have been his um, debut. That was certainly Silverwood's first tour. Um, that mm. might have been his debut, although I reckon he might have um, played earlier in that series. But quite nice that, that Silverwood yep. gets a mention. Of course, he's had a pretty good month. But can I run you through a couple of 5 for 91 things? Because 5 for 91 is an absolutely outstanding set of bowling figures historically. There there are not many. There are only 11 
So it's never been done. It's only been done in one format, which is men's test cricket. Right. Obviously hard to take five for 91 in a T20 game or something, for instance. Um, but it's never been done in women's tests. But in, in men's tests, Richie Benno got a five for 91 at Adelaide in that series that Australia won, what was it, 4-0 at Ashes Thrashing in 1959? Yep. 59-60. Charlie Griffith oh, yeah. got a five for 91 for the West Indies at Lords in 63 when the Windies won 3-1. Intikab Alam, the Pakistani leg spinner, took five for 91 twice in the same test match. Ooh. What? Against New Zealand in Dhaka, five for 91 in each innings in 1969. And then there are five for 91s for Ashley Mellett, the Aussie spinner in Chennai against India, Waka Yunus at Lords, Chris Gale, five for 91, one of his two five of his <laughs> fivers in his career, and then Jerome Taylor and Zahir Khan. So a pretty interesting list of five for 91s. That's a, that's a great list. Graham and Graham, there's a link there. Graham, if mm-hmm. he is English, it could be Freddie. Uh, and as you say, there's a, a number of five for 91s. I doubt it's Marcus North, but we, we've given you a slew of options there, Graham. Let us know whether we got it right. <laughs> and if we didn't, well, fuck, what more can we do? <laughs> what more can we do? Um, and, and lastly, while we, we're talking about our audience and the ways they've got in touch, I just wanted to... To say hello to uh, Joe Bracker or Breaker or Bracher or however I'm supposed to pronounce it. I'm sorry, Joe, it's not immediately apparent. But he sent us a lovely message on Patreon having signed up saying that he wanted to thank us for the podcast, which is a, a highlight of his commute. But he told us a lovely little story. He said, when I was a kid from the age of eight, I spent all my summers with my dad watching Surrey cricket at the Oval and Guildford. Uh, loving being there for an amazing multi-winning Surrey side and collecting autographs from great overseas players like Warren and Callis. Uh, I never fell out of love with the game, but when I approached university, my attendance at the Oval reduced to the odd day at a test match every year. Since last summer, though, something has changed. I was lucky enough to be balloted a day to the World Cup final, and my passion for the game has increased almost to the levels they were as a kid. And your podcast is possibly the one thing that has really driven it back. Uh, This season, I've become a member of Surrey again and can't wait to spend the odd day watching them play with my dad again. And without your podcast, my fire for cricket may not have been lit as strongly again. So... Thank you, and I hope my nerd pledge helps to keep it running. Well, it does. Everybody who pledges is absolutely central to keeping the show running. But what a lovely message, Joe. Thank you for getting in touch. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can sign up on the Patreon page, and there's a direct messaging channel you can use right there, P-A-T-R-E-O-N slash the final word. Thanks, Joe. That, that's really lovely. Yeah, we'll, we'll try and do a, a bit more uh, on the correspondence in coming weeks. There's also going to be an episode we're going to drop into the feed in a couple of days talking a bit more about um, patron nerd pledge, but, but what we're going to do uh, during the Women's World Cup. So we won't spoil that by saying too much today, but keep your eyes out mm. in your feed there. And, and nice that, that Joe has um, signed up with Surrey, Jeff, because that's where we're heading to next. We're heading to the boardroom at the Oval. That's exactly it, where you were and, and where I was linked in. So that's been Nerd Pledge for this week. Uh, let's go now to our interview with Ebony Rainford Brent. Hi, I'm Natalie Jimonis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. I'm sitting in the Surrey County Cricket Club boardroom 
with a member of the Surrey County Cricket Club board, Ebony Rainsford Brent, of course, England International, World Cup winner, Test Match Special Commentator, works on pretty much every television station in the world, the Director of Women's Cricket here at Surrey. But you get to sit in this quite plus room and, and, and sit around the board table. Perhaps let's just start there. Yeah. Um, that you've been able to go from being a young girl, coming to the club, having no real cricket background when you first landed here, playing for England and now having uh, the opportunity to serve in, in this capacity. You, you couldn't have possibly foreshadowed that even maybe five years ago. It's, um, it's surreal, really. It's, uh, it's two things. One, the addiction of cricket has kept me coming back through these doors, which has been weird. And then I suppose the other side is to be able to sit in those power meetings as such, which I'm biased, but I think this is the greatest cricket club in the country. And to be part of that and be part of those big decisions, you know, things that go on from development of the, the new stadiums through to what's happening in foundation, through to what's happening in women's cricket budgets. There's a whole range of, you know, areas that we talk about and I'm privileged to be there. I still pinch myself. I just don't, mm. I don't, sometimes I have to question myself how do I get here, but it's amazing to be part of that and to be sort of part of the revolution. Uh, let's just uh, explain before we mm. go too much further. The reason we want to get you on is to talk about um, your ethnicity, mm-hmm. uh, being a black, proud black woman, the first black woman to play for England, but also how that relates to the program you launched last week. So the Afro-Caribbean Engagement Program, ACE, I think it's called. ACE, it? yeah, ACE the, the acronym, sure. yeah, yeah. Um, which is all about trying to tap into the, the latent resource that is the black community in South London, getting more people into the club at Surrey, both in a, I guess, an elite level, playing level on, in the county teams, but also just giving cricket a chance to thrive in that community again when it really has dropped off in recent years. Yeah, it's massive how much it's... it's. First of all, take my own journey, for example. Um, grew up less than a mile down the road as the bird cro- uh, crow flies, as they say. And I loved sport, loved football. I loved sort of every sort of sport that you try. But the one thing that I was aware of is that cricket wasn't in my consciousness. I lived just down the road. I mean, mm. You could throw a stone pretty much if you're good enough. You most of could even throw a stone to where <laughs> I lived. And it, it's, it, it frustrates me that I still got in by a little bit of luck. It was a, a program that went into school to try and get state school kids in certain communities going. And actually, there's quite a few of us playing informal cricket on concrete playgrounds who had waves of talent um, from all sorts of backgrounds, not just black, you know, the road I grew up on, every sort of street, every house had a different culture, a different ethnicity. Mm. But we were playing serious levels of tape ball cricket and uh, softball cricket, um, some rough games we played, it was a lot, a, lot, <laughs> a lot of fun. But what's really interesting about that, I got a one-off lucky opportunity where a woman who worked for Surrey saw me. Um, I maybe stood out because I was a girl and it was mainly guys. And I kind of got plucked out of that system, like supported. She um, she knew that my mum didn't have much money and all that sort of stuff. But I got a, a real opportunity that I'm still always conscious that there were hundreds of kids still playing with waves of talent that were not in any sort of cricket club, not in any sort of structure, not making it through the performance systems. And I hear this myth that, you know, the black community don't like cricket or don't care. I think it's two things. I don't think we've reached out enough. And and I think that's for a lot of communities. And I, and I don't think we've created alternative pathways into the structure. So we just kind of got chatting inside us, Richard Gould, um, Lonsdale Skinner, who's one of the early black players that played for Surrey back Mm. in the 70s. We just threw around ideas and said, let's just start something. We don't know how this is going to manifest and how it's going to grow, but let's just start. um, You know, one thing is, if you like stats, 42% of the kids 10 10 to 19 walking around here are from the black community. Wow. Um, that kind of, and you start to take in like 
Lambeth, Southwark, Croydon, all that sort of stuff. Most probably half the kids walking around are that, from that community. So one, we're missing out on a talent, and two, just really serving our community. So we want to do something different. And yet here, you're in the boardroom, mm. and the only other people who are black in the club are, are usually um, working in security or, or the cleaners, and there, there doesn't seem to be that that middle yeah, group. You, you know, apart from, of course, some, some not- notable exceptions in, in recent years with yourself and Alex Tudor, and I'm sure there's others I'm missing out there, but high-profile players that went on to play for England and also Surrey, but an area which has such a, mm. a, a yeah, rich potential, so many black kids running around, mm. um, potentially playing tape ball cricket or so forth, or whatever it is, but not in the formal pathway. Yeah, we do We do have a few um, staff members through. There's my coach, actually, who played Jeremy. He's still knocking about, and he's in the performance department. You know, we've got a couple of staff members, but we don't have the mass... I, I calculated this, right? So yeah. this is this is the corny side of my brain. Um, the population of Lambeth is about 325,000, and roughly 75,000 will come from the Afro-Caribbean background. Um, when I started to put it into context, in the 25 years I've been walking through this area, we could have filled the stadium 80 times with the potential we could have chosen from. Yeah. You, you think about how many T20 blasts and you think, you know, and I think the myth that cricket as a whole, you know, this is not just a problem I think we have, I think the whole sport, is we say they're not interested, they just want to play football. I think that's a myth. I think it's just that we don't reach mm-hmm. out. Um, and, and I want us to change that conversation, actually, that... You know, I think cricket is built on an elitist structure. We know that kids come through the private schools, so that's where everyone looks for talent and the traditional clubs. And it's kind of, we just perpetuate that same cycle. Mm. And actually what we need to do is find new ways of really engaging. I think there's some good programs like Street Chance, but we still struggle with transition. So it's just more really thinking more innovatively about how we support those communities because it won't be the traditional structure. It'll be something different and new and fresh. Cricket is a sport that's always looking to the past. And it seems to me that there are a couple of kind of points of grief, I guess, almost of mourning in cricket. And, and one is the, the West Indies teams of the 70s and 80s and the way the West Indies have faded. Um, but the other is Afro-Caribbean cricket in England and the way that mm. that's dropped off. If you look at, you know, the way that the Oval used to be a, a sort of West Indies home ground during that period in the 70s and 80s. And, and now it's just not the case anymore. What do you think, is actually behind that disconnect. You know, we're, we're mm. talking about why the disconnection has come and, and the fact that it can't just be laid at the feet of disinterest on or a lack of interest on behalf of that community. But where has it come from when there was that connection mm. 20, 30, 40 years ago that's no longer there? Mm. Well, 20, 30, 40 years ago, we had up to nearly 40 players playing in the county system, which mm. I think straight away, if you're from the black community and you look at a sport and you see people who represent you, you're straight away thinking, oh, that, this is for me. Maybe I'll go down to the Oval. And then when the West Indies, I've spoken to, I've done interviews with lots of people from the community. I think when a lot of musical instruments got taken away and that sort of, you know, you, when you watch a lot of the communities that you know watch cricket, when you saw the World Cup and the Afghanistan, Afghanistani supporters or the Indian supporters they bring a real culture and a different flair and I think that for a while after that sort of West Indies heyday was taken away so um, I think the local black community just felt it wasn't quite the environment for them and they kind of distance themselves they still love the cricket you know I'm engaging with the ACCA at the moment the African Caribbean Cricket Association there's still a massive love for it I just feel that there feels they feel and I'm saying they but most of the black community feel that the the ground doesn't really represent them they don't see players coming through um, and there's a bit of an issue there also one thing uh, it's worth noting and this is it's such a negative point 
If you look at a lot of the black players that did play in our county cricket traditionally, many of them learned their trade in the West Indies. Mm. So actually what I would say is, whereas sports like football and rugby have found ways to diversify, um, we've we've just never actually really had many come through our system. So that tells a bigger story. I think that's worth, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about. It's, you know, I don't want the thing sound bleak, but I think it does paint a picture that even when we did at our best, I suppose, there weren't still kids coming through the system. Yeah, well, there's a stat in that uh, in the uh, in the uh, program that got launched last mm. week saying that there were 33 black players in the county championship in 1994. There's nine mm. now, and, and I suppose uh, the most high profile of those have both come out of the mm. Barbados system in Jofra Archer and, and mm. Chris Jordan. Mm. You don't so much think about it as coming through the local mm. pathway and coming through parts of London like this. Daniel Bell Drummond, uh, the, um, the Kent batsman mm-hmm. I interviewed him last year about this topic and he's from South East London originally and he set up another um, program platform isn't it yeah, the platform, yeah, platform initiative, initiative yeah. um, in order to uh, get more um, black kids um, giving them access to mm-hmm. cricket I'm, I'm paraphrasing a long conversation but essentially mm-hmm. he said growing up now in that part of London it's not so much that they don't want to play cricket they just don't see it mm-hmm. and that's partly a legacy of cricket leaving free to air television visibility is key I so what's interesting about my journey like I said to you I didn't really see I didn't see many people I suppose it helped seeing Tudor and Carl when I was growing up as sure. kind of two players to look to but when I fell in love with cricket was watching it I would have been about 16 and I can't remember what series it was but I was watching Simon Hughes talk about swing bowling on Channel 4 and it was the first time like you know the art of cricket we're all geeks I know we're yeah, all yeah. geeks out here and you know I've been playing street cricket I've been getting a little bit into Surrey it all sort of started happening but sitting down and watching it and having a bit of an understanding from playing seeing it changed the game for me and it it made me start going back to coaches going how do I do that how do I do this and I got hooked that visibility is vital and I think what's really good is we are at a turning point so as much as it kind of sounds negative I'm so hopeful for this next decade Mm. with cricket coming back to free to wear I think these conversations are much more relevant now Um, I think the world's going social and that's everything from social media to caring about your communities and social impact and stuff like that so it's a perfect timing so how is your program going to help and how's it going to to change things a little bit? Walk us through it. Yeah, good question. Let's hope it works. Um, the plan at the moment, so first of all, what we've done is, I think the, the media and the marketing has been great because it's yep. started a conversation, you know, I think guys like you who, who want to delve in. Secondly, what we're trying to do is almost create an alternative pathway in. So by having this sort of millies, what we're having is a scholarship stroke academy that's going to run kind of sit alongside our performance program so it normally our performance program you imagine under nines sorry under nines nine under tens 13s 15s all the way up to the first team and it's kind of a straight line um, that exists for the boys and girls what we're kind of creating is just to the side an alternative route in which we're not going to expect players to necessarily be perfect at the front foot drive had hours of hours of one-to-one coaching but we're looking for athletes pure athletes some may have cricket background and we've got a lot who are playing in the black british clubs or some of the traditional clubs um, are putting their name forward but also interestingly schools are going we've got a talented kid he can run 100 meters 11 seconds already right and so we're trying to f- target those sort of players and say all right you might be 11 years old never cr- hit cricket bat before but I tell you what you are most probably one of the best athletes we've seen running around in this community like the javelin thrower who you've been dealing with yeah exactly so I spoke I was um I was speaking to a guy and he's maybe a bit outside our age group now but he's six foot I keep saying six foot he's pushing six foot seven missed out on javelin career so I was going through GB uh javelin and when I say to you pure beast of an athlete just you know what I mean just pure mm. beast of an athlete and 
He was saying, I am maybe throwing maybe a couple of metres short of the top players. So he's just missing out on an athletics career because you just have to be, like, it's about millimetres at that top level. Sure. But you tell you, you take someone like that and transition them into cricket, and I tell you what, we've got a wave of athletes that we can tap into that other sports are. You look at how university programmes go about getting talent. They often look for an idea of a what does someone's physical attributes need to be then try and translate that so that's how we get sports for like bobsleigh and other sort of thing they take sprinters who maybe just missed out but they know they can run quick on ice so i think we need to be a little bit more innovative because there's talent out there and they may not have hit a cricket ball but or hit a hardball cricket ball but when you see them just run around and ball striking ability pace there's a lot out there and it, that applies to you as well. I mean, a lot of this, Ebony, you're the you're the figurehead of this program. But I'm talking a lot but, about it. But, 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 but the fact that your life and, and your your yeah. life in cricket it, it marries up in so many different ways and makes you yeah. the perfect ambassador. Really, I mean, in the um, grew up in Brixton, mm. uh, tough upbringing mm. by any yardstick. Mm. weren't playing cricket. Mm. Didn't find the game till twelve. You played every other sport almost to you know, sort of a international level as a kid, running around making all diff- different sorts of squads and all sorts of different sports. And then they they find you because you can. Um, or, also got the reports from people you talked to at Surrey from yesteryear, so they saw you hit the ball once, you know, we've got to get her in the game. Mm, mm. And you weren't going to find your way to play cricket. That wasn't going to be your life, was it? It was going to be probably a different life altogether. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I, I, was, I was a natural, talented athlete, and I, I suppose, you know, that's a nice thing. I had three older brothers, so we were running around playing sport from a young age. Um, I'm also jealous of other sports, so I'm jealous of football, which is engaging everybody you know I'm jealous I'm jealous I'm jealous of netball where I see these really tall athletic girls that we're missing out on talent I'm actually as a performance kind of minded person I want to get as much talent as we can through the door from any community so I know my personal journey I also know there's a lot around here that we could be making the most out of because even if you just get more people playing but they're you know they're some might not make it through as a player but what you do is you raise the standard of the local community all of a sudden that's driving performance schools want to get competitive so that's what I like about the ACE programme straight away we're hearing clubs going we want to get a kid in that programme yeah, yeah. you're hearing schools go right we want to get and, and if you create a inspiration piece at the top you know you, you hear people getting so excited about a player they produce for England a player they produce for Surrey so if someone goes right we want to be the next schools who get two or three ACE kids coming through then all of a sudden you've created a competitive element. So that school's going to up their sport, that PE teacher's going to get motivated. So I think that inspiration piece is vital. And I think from my personal journey, like I said, it's um, it, there's so many kids out there who I think sport could be powerful for them just to transform their personal lives, um, self-esteem, confidence. So that's everything I got. You know, like I said, yeah. with a tough, tough, hard bringing, upbringing, I think sport was the one thing that gave me self-esteem and confidence and motivation to kind of power through the tough times so um yeah i hope we can do the same and, and use cricket as a vehicle to really branch out ebony you were playing uh, at, at a national schools level you were playing basketball you were doing shot put and hurdling you represented london in football and squash and then by 17 <laughs> you're, your research, you're working <laughs> yes yeah, so we always uh, but you're walking out at 17 to debut for england in cricket how and why was it cricket that that was the yeah. sport where you eventually broke through at that level. Yeah, so there's this lady called Jenny Washcott. She passed away a couple of years ago, right? And um, she she was the one who kind of always dangled this carrot. So if she saw me go into basketball a bit too much, she'd be like, right, we need to get her a scholarship. We need to get her something. Or, you know, she was always <laughs> like, 
she was just obsessed pretty much with not letting me go elsewhere and <laughs> they came to this point basketball was like and I loved basketball I'm such a I loved basketball as a kid it was like the most amazing sport and England basketball was getting you know English schools were getting a bit more and cricket was getting more and she pretty much had a showdown and she was like right we're, we're plucking you and <laughs> did everything she could so she was competitive she was that sort of mindset I'm saying I'm like right we need to hold on to talent so it was her um, I love so many other sports I have to say uh, like this is a slightly off the topics but I used to love squash uh, not squash shot put I kind of got to this point where my body didn't get big enough to keep progressing <laughs> so I, I used to like put on a bandana and you had to act hard like I tried to act hard so before you threw the ship put I'd like scream and smack my face like 10 times like I'm a WWE wrestler and it was got to a point I was about 16 or 17 I was still quick so I, hurdled, I did a lot of hurdles and stuff um, but the shot put I just couldn't launch it anymore and these girls were getting like filling out and I was just like I was trying but it just didn't happen so, so it wasn't going to be I wasn't going to be a shot putter as much as I wanted to it mm. just didn't progress as far it must have made your mum pretty proud that, you know, as, as I mentioned before, you know, it, it's been a tough start for you in life in, in a multitude of ways and that you are um, receiving your cap to play for England at age 17. Yeah, and uh, one thing I'll say, so this t- it's a technicality. I played, me and Isha have both got our official cap is 17. We played against yeah. um, Netherlands. I think it was like a, one of these sort of European tournaments. Um, so that was kind of our first cap. And it was amazing. But the big one was when I played against India in the World Series when I was sort of early 20s because that was um, like that was a major team that we played against and that was where the hoo-ha came. And first little bit of media in my mum, but it, uh, Metro wrote about it. And my mum, you know those guys who stand on the street with the, the papers? My yeah, mum yeah. literally just like, give me all those papers and like, <laughs> started handing them out to everyone. That's my kid, that's my kid, that's my kid. And now you're a columnist for the Metro. Exactly, exactly. I've done it all. So um, yeah, my mum loved it. My mum loved it. Um, and and I suppose like you know knowing how much support meant to me and how much of a release it was and um, things like that it was it was yeah it was it was it was amazing it's you know it's been a unique journey I think but it was um, really rewarding to have that tell us a bit more about your mum and, and that support and uh, the life that you had with her yeah so I mean things that people don't know so you know uh, interesting thing so my mum's single parent four kids uh, lost my oldest brother through knife crime when I was five years old so you got a, you're dealing with a mum who's got sort of turmoil there then two other boys who are struggling to cope with that because they've just lost their brother so you know all sorts of problems that filtered out through that and my mum and initially had to leave work because of my brother passed away in the hotel at uh, the hospital sorry that she worked in I think it was a bit much emotionally yeah so money's getting tighter and then she sees her daughter soon after start finding this love for sport and we got to a point where the amount of travel that was needed for cricket was really tough that my mum we didn't drive so my mum wouldn't be able to get me up to Trent Bridge or you know workshop or Aundor and stuff like that it's because of day jobs so what she did she started to work nights at Sainsbury's, um, changed her job pattern. So all through my teenage years, she would work all night, get on a train with me, go to wherever I was playing, like literally nap during the day. And what we never told people that, because people would go say, oh, your mum's always like sleeping, does she not care? Or, you know, and she'd wake up a little bit. They didn't know we, she'd worked all night yeah, yeah. to support me to play. So, you know, I, I don't, I've never really heard of anyone else say that. I'm not sure if, you know, maybe there are the parents who've done that and I'm sure it's technically illegal to you know leave your child overnight instead but what my mum realised it was the best way for her to have been able to make sure I could get to games and that's an incredible sacrifice really I, I don't know 
you know, there's a, and I think this is one of the problems with this talent scouting system is even if you've got a kid with talent, how hard it is for the family to be able to support them to make it. You look at yeah. a lot of the kids coming through the private schools and they've got two parents and sometimes they might have a carer or support network at home. So mm. someone's driving them to and from. It's a huge sacrifice on a family to support a kid coming through. And another reason why I made it is because my mum did that. My mum, you know, my mum sacrificed her her working ability it was one of the best jobs she could get that would pay and allow her to do that that's crazy did you understand at the time what a sacrifice she was making you know sometimes when you're yeah. when you're a kid you don't necessarily think about the adult side of things that much yeah i think um i think being the youngest and seeing all the kind of problems that were falling out at home i always had this real appreciation of what my mum did like uh, it's small things but like i knew money was tough so say if it was the last bit of milk in the in the fridge i would never just go and drink it i'd go because i knew i wasn't sure if we had the cash to go and replace and get another four so i'd always check in i knew mum was making sacrifices i'd be mum is it okay she always said it was fine but i always was conscious like i don't want to just sort of destroy all the food in the house and there's nothing left for anybody else sure. or my mom or stuff like that so i think why she partly did it as well as she knew that i could see that i could see what sacrifice she was making i maybe didn't say thank you that much because i was still a bratty kid like every other kid is. Mm. but i knew i knew i knew she was putting a lot on the line um for that how important was it that you and uh, the brother directly above you mm. got the chance to um flourish scholastically as mm. well and got the chance in, in your case to go to a school that is a, a good school, like yeah. a, a very good school, and, and likewise your other brother. Like, how much of a difference did that make for the two of you? And did you kind of appreciate that at the time as yeah, well? Yeah, we were chatting over a drink yesterday, weren't we? My brother that I'm close to, uh, Dominic, who has flourished really well now in his career, he got a scholarship to Alain. So mm. um, very mentally talented, as in he was, like I think he was on these gifted programs from like eight years old at school. And one thing that I would say about good schools is they raise your level of amb- ambition. So my school, Greycoats, I went to, which is, it was Victorian Sloan Square, it's now more in Victoria. Yep. You know, we had a teacher called Miss Gollenberska who was a, a crazy, I mean, she was a basketball woman who played for England. But because it was a good school with a good teacher, she was making sure my school, my sports standards were high. And then you've got your academic right. teachers going, you can't drop your studies. So, you know, I've gone on and got a master's in chemistry because my teachers had always said, look, we want you to either be Oxbridge or, you know, and I went for an interview at Oxford. I decided actually not to go there. But yeah, my, my school raised my ambition level. And I don't think enough of the young people are getting that sort of input, that sort of... I hear so many kids being told by teachers are never going to be good enough. Um, and it really... If that's your influence of a, you know, a, a school that, you know, doesn't have high ambitions for you and you're coming from all these sort of socio- socio-economic issues, you're not going to have that impact. And I, I look at the, you know, my other two brothers who didn't have such a, a good run and, a, and their schools weren't as good. And I yep. think when you marry it with all the challenges we're hitting at home, it, it makes sense. It makes sense why their paths weren't as easy as ours. So we're not easy, but as um, we didn't get, I think the academic lift I got as well as a sporting lift made such a difference in my journey. Yeah, it's interesting that you've, you know, you went and had that sort of academic life, yet as a professional cricketer, your story is quite the same as a lot of your colleagues and peers from that era. 
before the professionalism era comes through. So even though you've you've got this training and you could have gone into had a career, but you want to play for England. So in turn, you have to take some pretty interesting jobs to just to pay the rent. <laughs> I was telling you yesterday, my funniest job is definitely police lineups at uh, <laughs> Victoria train station. So you got paid. I think it was about twelve quid a pop, right, Jeff? You would have, um, and I, I did my best because I mean it's good money. Think yeah. about it, right? You go down, you. You sort of stand face on, turn left, turn right. Sometimes they tell you sort of make a noise or do something. And then you're like, all right, cool. So I've just signed up for the black one. Can I pass for the mixed race? So you'd see, like, it comes out, we're looking for eight. So I try to pass for mixed race. Then you try and pass for any Asian that you can. So I was trying to, like, on a good day, you could do two or three back to back. 36 quid, where mm-hmm. when I was working it, I also worked in Next in uh, Victoria Station. Um, you know, that was £5 an hour those days. So yeah, if right. you're popping out like, mm-hmm. 36 quid on a night, then you're getting your next. Then you're getting what's called education maintenance allowance, which was 30 quid a week. All of a sudden, you're flossing. Basically, you're vintage. You're like, I am all right. So, yeah, I've done all sorts of fun jobs um, and then loads of coaching around the side. I've done sales. I was crap at sales. I did sales. Um, I got sacked pretty much. You, you, know, you know when your sales are going down and then you're at the bottom every week and then the boss is calling you in and I'm just like, I can't sell. I'm just crap at it. You were just so. too empathetic. You were too nice to the customers, I'm sure. Yeah, maybe. Felt bad maybe. about flogging them stuff. I did. <laughs> and you can make a lot of new friends in a police line up you know people with <laughs> with unique skills and um, exactly exactly pout pout yeah look, uh, to, the, look to the yeah <laughs> um, so uh, tell us about how did you cope with the you, 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 made, you had that debut at 17 you didn't get to bat in one of the games made no in the other one and then oh, you, and then you hurt your back and you couldn't play for two years and and it took you until 2007 to get your way back into the England team. What's it like when you, you're that young, you've got your opportunity, and then suddenly they're like, sorry, you, you can't play any more cricket for the next couple oh, of years? Mate. massive depression. I um, So basically, I'd always had a back niggle, like from maybe 14, 15, but people are like, you're too young for it to be serious, just keep powering through. I had mm. a dodgy action, so mm. had a proper mixed... Uh, so I was a bowler, first off, like... Um, Pretty quick back in the day. Uh, Catherine Brunt laughs because we always jib each other, but I was I was the quickest on the circuit at the time, like good pace. But I had a horrendous action. I like open feet, so it was all mixed. Um, and then I also used to fall over, so it was all just it was just Oof. a it was a car crash, car crash waiting yeah. um, to happen. <laughs> so I remember it, like how it went down as I've gone to Guildford to kind of do like an England kind of off the record trial. Richard Bates, who was a coach at the time, said, "Come up, bowl at Lottie and all that." And I was like, "Yeah, indoor, I'm going to have them. I'm going to have them." You know, <laughs> it's just like in your head, you're just telling you you're going to take them down. But bowl two balls and. Um, yeah, like I could feel something was like off, went home. Um, I was living with my boyfriend at the time, quite young we were, but it was what it was. Um, and like I was just like, oh, my back's a bit dodgy. Bent down to pick up a remote and like that was it. I never like walked properly again for a year. Um, like I struggled. So I had to leave university because I was pretty much in my first year. I was told when they saw the MRI, most of you never play sport again. Had two polyps discs, a pars defect. Um, all sorts of problems going on and they were like it's obviously been misdiagnosed and just like left and you're in a world like there's a lot of damage and like I couldn't sit up I didn't it took me about a year but I couldn't sit up properly so that's why I left university for a year because I just couldn't even sit up to study Um, when I did walk my leg was dragging behind it was like it was horrendous Um, so I then fell into like this huge depression ate so much cake like just got fat like anyone who called mm-hmm. me you're right Ebs yeah just can you just bring me some cake like that's what I want I got like I put on a whole load of weight um, and yeah it was a really dark place because it wasn't like now where you've got 
this finance to fund you if you fell out of the team and you couldn't perform there was no physio there was no um no anything really so two things happened is uh, my mum gave me this motivational dvd i don't know if you've heard of a guy called tony robbins he's like this American oh yeah loud yeah yeah guru. the biggest yeah. jaw he's in the amazing. business tony robbins <laughs> each, each one of his teeth is like a fucking volkswagen terrifying he stuff beast he is a beast of a man but but like if you like that sort of thing he'll rev you up and i like i was listening to these tapes and the other was my brother gave me a proper mental kick up the backside because it was a year of me just like wallowing getting fat not leaving you know not and he just said like you're listening to the doctors and you've pretty much effing given up like mm. sort your effing mindset out like stop giving up like you've got to fight this was mm. you know and he just nailed me with a he, lot of f-bombs he just put a headband on you slapped you in the face a few times <laughs> <laughs> exactly. get out there and launch that shot put <laughs> yeah exactly it was all of that yeah. um, so he actually because money was like he gave me he gave me a load of money to go and try looking for other types of um help so normally you'd gone to physios i found a chiropractor i just kept trying different people i found this chiropractor is amazing um and i remember the first time he adjusted me i hadn't walked in like probably a year like so i had to get taken down there and he adjusted me and i like i could walk it was maybe about three or four hours and he was like right i need to see you two or three times a week changed every, changed a lot about how i ate all my mattresses all that and it took about a year to get back to running then I got a scholarship from England when they heard that I was sort of starting to get back to health. Surrey then brought me in here and I was doing loads of work and then it was about three years total from door to door. Mm. Um, so to come back and make that, that game was like like mad, like crazy. Like I'd written up all these goals on my wall and I'd written when I wasn't even walking that I wanted to be in the World Cup team in 2009 and I'd written I wanted to get a Masters in Chemistry. And it's like mentally, though, that's the thing that's I think has made me like a, a more resilient person. Like being able to learn how to go from full depression and down and out to getting yourself back is like it's it, it makes you realise you can do so much. Making your appearance in that World Cup team in two thousand and nine, the successful World Cup champions of two thousand and nine, yeah. all the more special. Yeah, definitely. Because you know, one thing I want to be honest about my career is like I didn't have the. The game time I wished, um, I didn't, you know, I didn't score the weight of runs that I wished, I didn't get, you know, I was playing in a team with three of the best players in the world, Charlotte Edwards, Sarah Taylor, Claire Taylor, at that stage I'd moved to, I had to give up bowling for a while and I tried to become a batter and I, str I struggled to get in that team and make a name for myself, but two of, um, my kind of accomplishment was just to get back and play mm. and represent your country and pull on that shirt and like the dream was to get to the World Cup so I remember as soon as I got on the plane like you knew you were in the squad but when I got on the plane I just had to put my sunnies on and I just like were barling because mm. like that was the the dream for me I mean welling up a little bit as I talk to you now but that was the dream for me is you know representing your country going through all that and you know I wish if I had more time I could have maybe stayed longer in my career and played but I yeah I, I knew what it meant to kind of uh, to whether this whole journey from a 10 year old through to kind of getting to that World Cup team it was a huge huge amazing time so when you look back at it do you you feel that sense of satisfaction of, of having made it through um, rather than looking at things like that you didn't get to play a test match or or that you know you, mm. you, you were in that World Cup squad you did get to play a game in that World Cup campaign um, I think you were chasing 78 against Pakistan so it, it probably wasn't the most exciting game you've ever mm, played in your yeah, life exactly. um, um, but you were there yeah I think yeah that's what I say is I how would I describe it like I I wish I've had more game time I think when I retired I was frustrated with my career as in I wanted to play more there's a lot of times where I was performing scoring the most runs on the county circuit but couldn't get in the England like in on the lineup 
um, which I had conversations with coaches about. You know, you, you're saying, hold on, I'm scoring runs, let me get in. And I think when I finished, I was frustrated. I just thought, God, it's like, I had players saying to me, you know, I think you should be playing more, but you weren't. And I had this whole sort of emotional anger about it. Mm. But I think after, you know, a year or two of sort of stepping back, and I think sometimes it takes that sort of stepping back of like looking at it as a whole. You know, I, I thought about it as a whole picture and it made more sense that, you know, I, I didn't get get a chance, but I was also in a, a team which was hard to break into. Um, you know, and it, a different time, a different place. I got a call from a few people at West Indies saying, did you want to convert? <laughs> <laughs> Go the other way. The last year of your career was probably the most consistent and, and successful in one-day cricket. You know, you, you toured West Indies and India. Mm-hmm. Um, you made your, your two highest scores mm-hmm. in that run of games. And then, you know, it comes to an end. You're, you're 28 when you pull mm-hmm. the pin. How did it come to that that... You know that yeah. that that last year was the best one, and then you decided to to call it off. Yeah, I th- well, I think it was a mixture of a lot of those factors. Some of those of um, I, I did have a good county. And Michael Carberry actually uh, coached me during that last year and taught me how to score runs. Like I think I had technique, and you know we had good coaches around us, but maybe they didn't understand my game or how I operated. And so I, I kind of sought him out. He so county wise, I think I averaged like seventy or eighty in that last year because he. Mm taught me how to you know sometimes you need to learn how the art of like batting after time and I think I'd always get off to a 30 and then didn't know what to do yeah um or, or, you know, I know that sounds really basic but I did so he taught me how to score and I remember like in counter cricket I scored like 150 and then 120 back to back I called him I was like what do I do and he's like just keep going and yeah. I scored another one like so it was, I learned so much in that year but I also realized that it is hard graft being an international cricketer while you're not making any money and mm. you know career prospects at that stage yeah. weren't amazing um it changed a few years later, so maybe if I'd have stuck at it a bit more. Um, but a lot of players in that era, wasn't it? I mean, Isha Guha, who we've yeah, had on the show as yeah. well, she, she's talked about how yeah. th- th- there comes a point where yeah. you've got to kind of make a decision to have a career that pays more money in that era, not now that it's professional, yeah. but when, when it was kind of that amateur semi-pro, how long can you justify playing, playing. and making that time commitment week in, week out when yeah. you're sacrificing so much on the other side of the ledger? I've got a funny story about Isha Guru in my retirement, right? So Isha's in India. I think she might have been doing a personal training camp and the January I was thinking about quitting. So I was at an England training camp and I Skyped her. I was like, Ish, I need to talk to you. I'm thinking about retiring. And she was like, no, mate, dig deep. Go, you know, go long. We've, we've got another 10 years of this. She gave me this whole motivational speech. So I was like, right, if Isha's in, I'm in. I'll stick with it. A couple of weeks later, or maybe about a month or so later, Ish, um, Ish sends me a WhatsApp. And I'm like, what's up, mate? And she was like, oh, by the way, just to let you know, like, my retirement announcement's coming out. I was like, hold on. You told me to stay. What's going on? So she announced it. And then, like, about a week later, I was like, right, if she's out, I'm out. So, um, so yeah, Ish is kind of the motivation of half keeping me in for a minute and then when she decided she was out I was like right I'm out yeah, a lot has <laughs> talked about with, with you and Aisha Aisha of course with her sort of rich British Asian yeah, history yeah. And, and your uh, uh, British Caribbean uh, background uh, pressing fast forward to 2018 uh, Sophia Dunkley becomes the second black woman mm-hmm. uh, from uh, she's got from Jamaican extraction isn't she yeah I'm uh, not sure of her heritage but yeah she's mixed background mixed background and, and, yeah, yeah. and, and she um, obviously, and, so sorry stars a, yeah. a, sorry stars and a lot of love for you a lot of discussions around you at the yeah, time and what yeah. you went through then um what was it like? Uh, try and contrast what it was like being a black woman going through the system in your generation mm. compared to what it's like for, for Sophia now, and yeah. now that she's in England set up. Yeah, interesting. I don't, I don't know. When I, when I went through it, it was, um, I wouldn't describe it as an easy journey in the sense of, um, I don't know, I mean, it's really interesting because me and Isha have had this conversation. I 
I didn't feel that I related very well to everybody all the way through like everything from when you play a song that you know I love my soca music or you know I'd hear turn that rubbish music down or you'd open up your food and you hear like what's that food you know and you've, yeah, you've yeah. got your jerk chicken or whatever so I always felt a little bit um, uncomfortable about my background in sense in the cricket world not at home but in the cricket world so mm. you know going through that journey wasn't um, wasn't e- easy to digest that I just kind of started to just play down my blackness and such Um, whereas I think for Dunkley coming through she didn't have to do that Isha maybe related to girls more because she listened to the same music and stuff like that although she would eat her agent but she listened to the same music and so I think she had a few more relating points to the girls and say maybe I did culturally Mm -hmm. Um, so we had very different experiences and she would say she didn't feel uncomfortable I felt very uncomfortable but we also did come from very different backgrounds even though we were both um of colour whereas I think for Dunkley coming through you know I don't sense that there was any of that identity issues I think the girls are a little bit more open and a little bit more engaging and um, more accepting of different environments I think she's in a really good culture and you meet her she's so um, sparkly as a young Mm. kid I'm really excited to see how her career kicks on but I think for everybody the experience can be quite different Um, and it's interesting me and each at the same time we had different experiences and then you look at Dunkley I think it's it's set up better now I think people are a lot mm. more open more engaging different cultures are, are more commonplace um, in the sport as, well, as a whole so yeah I think we've all had such different experiences going through that journey Does it also help create that gulf between you and others when you know, your family's got this incredibly profound grief of, of having lost a close family member mm-hmm. and that's something that people don't know about but it's there mm-hmm. it, you know it, it's 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 every day for you and your family and it's not something that you can talk about w- with people you don't know particularly well yeah i don't think no i never spoke to anybody about i remember when so how the story came out about my brother was years later when i was doing a coaching thing and i'd do something for chance to shine and i was chatting just casually off record to journalists who was covering the the cricket and i I think he said something a little bit rude to me like what do you know about some of these kids going through and i said oh mate like trust me i know like i've lost my brother through knife crime and then I got a call the next day. So I thought I was casu- chatting casually. I got a call the next day saying the guy was trying to find the records of my brother. He's got different surnames for me. Mm. Um, so he'd been going hunting for it and they, they were going to do the story. Oh, um, so I might as well say something. So for me, it was like, oh my God, it was like a mental turmoil. No mm. one knew my background. I mean, maybe people guessed, but no one had ever asked. I never spoke about anything um, you know, my other brother as well had been in and out inside sort of in, uh, prison. So all these sort of stuff I never spoke to anyone about. And when it came out, Carolyn Atkins, who's one of my really good mates in the team, um, she was a bit annoyed with me. She was like, how do I not know this? Um, and, and maybe it does create a gulf. I, I, I was aware that no one else was going through my journey. And I think all the small things of like maybe being taken the mick out of food or being taken the mick out of about music and stuff made me think there's no way I'm telling anyone any of you know these sort of things that's so yeah. sensitive. Um, and that maybe creates a problem for me because I was maybe more distant, distant as a player in some ways or maybe had I sometimes had bravado and you'd make jokes and always be that sort of person who just didn't want to let anybody in. So that maybe didn't help you know coaches work with me because I just didn't feel comfortable. And I still look back now and I wouldn't change that I, I wouldn't have exposed myself in that way I don't think um, because I didn't really see anybody else having that sort of journey I mentioned off the top that now most people probably know you from the radio or, or the yeah. television I and mean, you've not really even touched on that mm. but in a way I feel as though 
the way you present to the outside world, that's only a small part of your life. It might be your profession, but the podcast you were doing a couple of years ago, talking to people well outside of um, the cricketing sphere, the work you're doing at the moment in South London at Surrey, mm. in the boardroom, but far beyond sort of the, the punditry, I suppose, of, of day in, day out. Do you think that all influences that, that you've made a decision to um, make a much broader contribution than simply kind of critiquing someone's cover drive? Yeah, yeah. I think my my love for cricket as a sport, I love playing it. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's a brilliant sport. It has so much to offer. But I've also been aware, like... It feels, it feels, even though I spend so much time and it, it feels like it's 30% of my life. Yep. Like, it feels like... I'm really interested in, in sort of... So I've done a uh, Master Practitioner of NLP, which is like a performance psychology. So I've studied a lot of that. So I'm interested in mindset. So when I did my podcast, I wanted to speak to people, first of all, outside of my world, because I knew there's such a, a range of experiences that... I think Cricket Week is great, but actually being in it, I feel like we often operate in a certain way and we, we all quite think in a certain way and we're not um, you know that's not negative I just feel that there are different worlds out there with different experiences and stuff that we can tap into so that mm. I feel like one thing I want to do with my experience in cricket is bring some of that thinking from outside in mm. so whether it's you know what are football doing or what are, well, how can we look at different mindsets and build athletes and different, I want to bring in different experiences from the other side of the world into the game um and I want us as a sport to reach out. So as we go into this new era of, say, the 100, um, it's an exciting platform that you could talk to other people who don't care about cricket about, you know, bridging that gap. And I feel like... Um, I maybe haven't even explained it very well. But like just, purpose, right? Like, yeah. you sort of see the game as a vehicle yeah. to achieve a broader p- purpose and objective than, like, than just going on of itself season on season like you see the game yeah. is doing something more yeah exactly and I'm studying this course called Anthropology of Sport at Goldsmith it's amazing and you kind of look at how sport can well as we all know you know you think about apartheid and you know how sport maybe can help yep. kind of build some of those bridges you look at so many things through history and sport has been a fascinating vehicle at sort of rebuilding communities I was well, recently we were um, looking at Maradona and when he moved to uh, Napoli in Italy which at that stage you know poorest town they had a load of problems and how he was used as figurehead to kind of one get their football up but create community spirit and stuff like that sport can do so many things mm. wider than just the players on the field and that's one thing that I'm really excited about this team actually you look at Owen Morgan as a leader and I think he's really open minded he's got much more of a diverse team and that's everything from you know Ben Stokes in in the north and Mark Wood down to you know Joe Root there's so many different experiences and different types of culture different types of people that he worked with and his own background I think we've got a team that's quite relatable to the outside world Mm. so I'm really excited about this new era of like all of those players being able to inspire lots of different types of people into the game So when you're thinking about psychology and you're talking about change and so on has Mm. that process also meant that you've been able to open yourself up more and and let people in Mm. more in in your own life? Yeah massively I'm much more going through the um the, the NLP course that I did really blew me open, I would say. And then I now do, I now do therapy um, regularly, and I don't do it sort of to solve a problem as such. It's more just like a personal growth thing, like 
get challenged on are you being open are you being so I would never have sat down I, if I would have if you'd have spoke to me maybe five years ago and tried to talk to me about my background or anything I would have had palpitations even if I spoke I would have had anxiety attacks and mm. just had these like these big sort of waves of um, anxiety but working with a therapist over a long time has helped me realise like you know there's there's no threat as such it's just authenticity it's openness and yeah I think my mind has massively um, changed and you know I'm grateful for all these sort of things that allow me to open up and then realize the value in sort of my journey and be able to use that to to support in other ways where there's also value is looking back to say the 2017 women's world cup Mm. it it feels like it was a real groundbreaking moment we've had nat germanos Mm. on the show before we've had mel jones isha we mentioned before and i guess you're the fourth member of that commentary world who didn't get your break then but it was a a very high profile Mm. example of these powerful women being on television week in week out through that tournament which has spread now into covering a lot of men's cricket Mm. as well the fact that you now do probably what more commentary on men's cricket than you do women's cricket it's a pretty big step that's been taken in a short space of time yeah it's massive one thing i'll say about that group we are all um so supportive of each other you know we have whatsapp groups where any sort of doubts or whatever you know if i'm going in thinking god i'm not ready for this you know jonesy will be straight on Mm. there going listen mate you've got this like she's incredible i think she's one of the the game changers in the world ish will be there supporting nat germano so you know we have all these groups we're seeing them in a couple of weeks for the women's world cup and i I left out a couple as well we've had ali mitchell and izzy westbury they've both been on the show as well mel farrell there's a lot of people that you know it wasn't your first chance there it's more that it's probably it's a game changer moment yeah it was rare that you would see that many women on the television on the radio at the same yeah, time yeah and it's the, the whole industry has changed now hasn't it and uh, you know I think what, what happened we were all sort of doing bits in sort of silos and sort of Mel Jones was sort of starting a bit in Australia first and then you know starting to do bits me and Isha did a little bit on the women's game yep. and then, you know it was all sort of small bits and now to see that we've got to a stage where they're high quality commentators female commentators who are I would just say now commentators I think yeah. is really a game changer and and actually the quality is amazing you know Mel Farrell for example someone I'm really passionate about I think she she her reporting her passion is amazing Izzy Westbury I love that she brings a little bit of sting she doesn't mind writing a little bit of uh, <laughs> edge to her so uh, you know we've we've got a huge wave of really exciting talent coming through and I'm just proud to be part of that group mm. but uh, how much of a difference did it make to be able to do that in a group you know to not be when you're dealing with representation so often it's like all right well here's here's now the one black character on this show or, or, <laughs> or, or here's Here's the one woman out of 11 blokes on this commentary team or whatever it might be. And I I, I guess Ellie Mitchell did it on her own for a few years. She did. But for the most part, it it felt like the shift in cricket really started on TMS and it was here's a whole range of female voices all at the same time so there wasn't all that pressure and scrutiny on Mm. one person to have to, to carry the flag. Yeah, but look, we, we all acknowledged it. So when we knew, and I think TMS actually tweeted a picture when there was the first time of an all-female commentary team. Mm. Uh, but you, one, there's a few people you have to give credit to. Cause I don't think we talk about the male advocates enough, but Adam Mountford created an environment, Ali Mitchell first, me and Isha coming through. Um, you know, he'd created a pathway where he didn't sort of make us feel tokenistic. He just mm. made us know that he felt we were valued to be there. And over time, he's just built built a really good environment through TMS that... Um, and, and gave us an all chance to flourish. So when you sort of see that crescendo at a moment around the World Cup where you look around and you think, oh my God, like it's crazy that there's an all-female team and all of us had enough experience, deserve to be there. 
um, and be part of that. So, yeah, I think it was a mixture of like having an amazing community of the women, but also I think we've got to give credit to people like Adam Alford who have helped change that landscape. Well, Ebony, you'll be going out to Australia again soon, part of the television and radio coverage. Who are you coverage. supporting, Adam? Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to be. Who are you supporting? I don't. I, 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 I support the game. I don't support anyone. This is the thing people don't understand about me. I, I'm an Australian. Yeah. I live in England, but yeah. I, when it comes, I, I barrack for Hawthorne in the footy. <laughs> I follow Dalit Hamlet on a Saturday, but oh, when it comes to cricket, I'm thoroughly impartial. Oh, right. Oh, right. I promise you. But Thailand, we're definitely going to Thailand. Thailand. Yeah. Uh, Thailand, Thailand. More on Thailand on the final word in a couple of weeks. I yeah. should add, uh, Ebony, uh, you're an inspirational person. You're a wonderful friend. We're so glad you're able to take some time out of your incredibly busy schedule to talk to us. Thank you for being part of the final word. Thank you for having me. Uh, g'day, this is Will Anderson, and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The Final Word this week is brought to you by Wisden Cricket Monthly, the best cricket magazine in the world. We say that. They didn't even tell us to say that, but we say that because that's what we think. Um, is, there is a partnership that's been going on between The Final Word and WCM, which actually takes longer to say than Wisden Cricket Monthly, but it seems shorter. It's like it's like WWW, which is nine syllables versus, you know, World Wide Web, which is three syllables, but there you go. Um, there's a partnership between us on the World Wide Web, as it happens, where you can get a digital edition of the magazine for six months, a six-month subscription for the uh, ridiculous price of £5.99, which is about 10 or 11 Australian dollars. And you can get that by going to a special link. It's bit.ly. If you don't know what a bit.ly thing is, then maybe you shouldn't be on the World Wide Web. But bit.ly is a shortening device. You type that in and then you put a slash and then you put WCM final for final word. And then you get your super cheap auto offer where you can uh, get yourself six months worth of copies on the digital uh, vibe of, and get that for a, a few pounds or dollars. Beautifully explained, Jeff. I've got a copy in my hand right now, as you can see through the screen of, of the latest edition. Um, they, they, I was at Wisdom Towers yesterday, um, also there at the Oval after talking to Ebony. I dropped in and said g'day to the, the, the boys and girls mm-hmm. of the magazine and um, each month they they put the magazine's cover in a frame and, and, and pop it on the wall so that the, the wall looks fantastic there at the moment. But uh, without a doubt, this is the best cover so it's uh, a cricket ball that looks like a heart because they're looking into the the beating heart of English cricket and what does the future hold what is the heart or where is the heart of the English game so a special report there which is definitely worth a read mm. there's an interview with Ravichandra and Ashwin uh, we mentioned uh, Ashwin earlier in the context of running out the mm. striker but um He's not a... When you sit down with Ashwin, having sat across the press conference table from him quite a few times and having read and listened to a lot of interviews with him over the years, you don't hear a lot about cricket. Sometimes you hear about the craft of offspin, but he thinks mm. big. He's a he's a guy who's got a lot more to say than, than simply uh, about the 22 yards in, in the middle of the ground. And um, and he does that here, uh, specifically focusing on, on climate change in his interview with John Stearns. That's, that's totally worth a read, worth picking up. I, I um, uh, spent a thousand words talking about Marnus Labuschagne. Um, how, how could you not after the summer uh, that he's had uh, on the other side of that ledger? Um, uh, Phil Walker, who's the editor-in-chief of the magazine, spent a thousand words talking about Ollie Pope. And there's a great photo in there, I should add, of Ollie Pope, the where he plays that uppercut with with both feet off the ground and his um, his heels are kicking his bum as he makes contact with the ball. So in addition to being a, a ripping read each month, uh, the way they, they pull together the artistic side of the magazine also makes it a real joy. Young Pope, um, <laughs> just getting involved. And you know what's happening, I think, 
next month because you're you're busy with baby stuff. I had an email from Phil Walker asking me to write your column um, because you can't write your column. So <laughs> he did say yeah, that. It's he, nice to know. That. He, he dropped me a line. He dropped me a line last week saying, "Is Jeff about?" And I go, "I reckon he's about." Drop him a line. I reckon he'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I'm sure you'll fill that space admirably, uh, Jeff. In yeah. So you... it, it's good to know that we're just regarded as the same person. Yeah, you know, yeah, interchangeable. Nice. Get, get one of the hairy Australians involved. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, there's Tim Key, who's the writer and, and comedian. I, I've read some extracts of his perfect day at the cricket. Uh, he's very funny. Uh, and uh, that's a great part of the uh, monthly offering at Wisdom Cricket Monthly. There's John Hotton's book reviews. They, they've got a big survey in this magazine from readers as to what they like most. And people love the book reviews and they love the perfect day at the cricket. So to be sure to flick to that if you, if you do pick up uh, a copy of the magazine or indeed jump on this digital subscription so you won't physically have it in your hands. But as we know uh, these days, uh, reading a, a magazine on your device, whether it's your phone or, or your iPad or your Kindle or whatever it is, it's, it's, it's a very straightforward thing to do. And that's what we're enabling through this deal. So bit.ly forward slash WCM final. You'll get directed to a pocket mags page. Uh, the discount's already built into that. So you don't have to put a code in or anything like that right there for six editions six quid ten bucks it's an absolute steal jeff as you mentioned it's the best cricket mag in the world we love working for them and we love working with them on the final word This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Uh, thank you, casting back to Ebony Rainford-Brent for putting aside an hour of her time to spend with us and for speaking so openly to us in that interview. As usual, she had a lot to say that was worth listening to. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure this came through. I haven't listened to the tape back yet, but, I mean, we're all pretty close, uh, the cricket freelance community, and, and Ebony's a big, big part of that. We're all close friends and, and love spending time with each other socially. So and I just knew that she would come on the show and and uh, and be a wonderful, warm, uh, welcoming, sort of inclusive guest. And and uh, I hope, I'm sure, um, if you listened to it, you would have got plenty out of it. And thanks again to Ebony for taking the time. She truly is one of the busiest people in cricket. So um, the fact that we were able to get her on the show and, and sit down with her there in the in the, in the the boardroom there was, a, yeah, it was a, a lovely thing to do. We have a busy segment ahead of us, so we'll try to dance light-footedly through the, the potpourri, everything else that's been happening in the world of cricket that we can keep our eyes on. There's always too much for us to be, even be able to cover in a show that tries to cover everything. In the Big Bash, by the time this show comes out, it should be just about time for the Sydney Thunder to take on the Melbourne Stars to see who's going to get into the final versus the Sixers. But there might not be a final because Sydney's forecast to have something like 50 millimetres of rain on Saturday when the final is supposed to be. There's been some agitation to, to move the whole thing, everything holus bolus to the MCG, but that's not going to happen due to the sort of high advantage for the the side that that won that final being the Sydney Sixers. So it's all a, a bit of a clusterfuck, to be honest, but um, it, it's nobody's fault. This is just the way they're not playing ball. If we couldn't keep the capital city of Australia as Melbourne uh, back in 1913 or whatever it is, we're not going to get the big bash final played at the MCG taken away from Sydney. And look, I appreciate the view of, of administrators who've been sounding out on Twitter about this, saying why should uh, the Sixers have to cede that uh, advantage? Why shouldn't they be allowed to win the trophy that way if, if, if it does get washed out. Uh, there'll be a longer conversation I think um, had about the Big Bash and where it's at. I, I 
appreciate there's a wide spectrum of views. We'll try and synthesise a few of those on the final word next week or maybe the week after. We'll get a couple of people on to um, pad out what, what they've been writing about and, and hopefully um, it all contributes to a stronger competition next year. I mean, we know it's got very strong foundations. Lots of people watch it on television, but um, we haven't seen quite as many people coming through the gates on average over the last couple of years and I think that's now starting to bite a little bit. So um, hopefully, though, that it doesn't end on, on a sour note and they do get on the field and, it, and it's a great, um, great final because the comp definitely needs it. The squads for Australia's men's tour to South Africa, some one-days and T20s, have been announced. Um, there, there's nothing bigger on this than the fact that Max Street's back, all right. <laughs> Max Street's back, all right. Glenn Maxwell's back and you're going to be in trouble. <laughs> hey, la, hey, la. Glenn Maxwell's back. <laughs> Um, that sounded a lot better in my head than it probably did on the podcast. <laughs> I think that's true of a lot of things that we say on here. Um, yes, Glenn Maxwell, mental health break during the T20 series back in November, was it? Uh, around then? Um, yep, but had, probably October. Probably. Uh, yeah. Proctober. Um, it's, it's, it's when you get your butt checked in October. <laughs> <laughs> He's... Um, Maxie, let's try to keep it together. Maxie's back, which after a, a really good Big Bash season, he's led the stars well um, and, and he's in both those teams, which is exciting for you and I. I don't think we need to go on about it because we get it. We know why. The other exciting bit is that the big three, not Australia, India and England, but uh, Cummins, Stark, Hazelwood are all in the ODI squad. Not Josh Hazelwood in the T20 squad, however, and I want to start a bandwagon now and I want to get going on this early. It's it's the Hazelwood for the T20 World Cup campaign because this is yep. purely on the basis of having watched him bowl one game for the Sydney Six. <laughs> but bloody hell, it was a good game. Like he, he just, he looked... There was a bit of venom to Hazelwood that, that that hasn't always been there in the past in white ball. He hit the length beautifully, but he wasn't just there. He nailed Yorkers when he wanted to. He was just that bit too quick and slippery, and, and suddenly you thought, well, maybe he's not too predictable to play white ball cricket. Maybe he's just a fearsome beast of a bowler who um, gets underrated because he happens to play next to some other really fearsome beasts of bowlers. So I'm starting the campaign now. Josh for the World T20, let's get him on. Yeah, well, between the the, uh, the big bash game you saw him play and the one day in India, which I was covering uh, for mm. the Guardian a couple he's of weeks ago, he's got to go to India. Where he bowled he's really got well. Go. He's, he's <laughs> got to go to India for the World T Twenty in 2016. He's, <laughs> he's one got of the, to one go. Of the myriad players that need to go to India. Um, he's got to be in the. Squ- I, I saw that um, Big Marcus Stoinis couldn't get a Guernsey despite. Mm. His prolific form in the big bash. I think he was named player of the tournament, wasn't he? So. He was. He made over 600 runs. So Mitchell Marsh has made it about 300 runs and <laughs> been picked ahead of him. So, yeah, interesting. But Stoinis did have a a rank wet dog of a World Cup, it must be said. Yeah. Yeah, I think that they, 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 yeah, they, they want to get Mitch Marsh um, back in the white ball stuff, don't they? They've been saying it for a while. They, they, they did bring him out. You remember he was um, injury cover for about five minutes for Stoinis during yeah. the World Cup. So I think it there's a pretty clear sign there. They want to get Mitch Marsh back to being an aggressive cricketer. They're going to use the, the white ball teams to facilitate that. No concerns from from my perspective, although it would have been nice to have seen Stoinis get another opportunity as well. But I'm sure we, they're, they're playing so much T20 cricket between now and October that he'll, he'll get a chance to, to prove himself one way or the other before that major tournament. Um, Matthew Wade. Uh, mm. Matthew Wade back in T20 cricket. It's been a long time, probably... 
the Sri Lanka 2016, I want to say. Might have been the last time he turned out for Australia in that format. So he's got an Olympiad uh, between um, uh, getting the chance to, to strap on the, the black or the whatever colour they wear in T20 cricket, and, and there he'll be. <laughs> Uh, Steve Smith and David Warner in both squads Ashton Agar and Adam Zamper in both squads Double Richardsons in the T20 squad We've got Jumping Jai and Kane uh, together in the T20 squad Sean Good. Abbott in there as well And Marnus in the ODI squad So there, there are a few, um, few interesting picks among that bunch yeah, there are. I'm glad to see uh, that, that Jai is very much back. Uh, Kane Richardson's done nothing wrong, deserves to keep his spot. Sean Abbott bowled beautifully in that one T20 he, he turned out in against Pakistan all the way back in, you know, footy season, wasn't it, when, when they played those uh, six uh, white ball games all the way back before the, the, test, um, the test summer started. But he, he's earned an opportunity to to play again and go overseas. So, uh, look, um, I, I don't think many people will be watching this series because of the time of night that it's played in and, and all the rest of it. It'll be all overnight in Australia, but mm. um, a good opportunity, especially in the T20 um, side of the ledger. I mean, the one days don't mean an awful lot in this part of the cycle, but um, but T20 very much does. So they have to... One of the things that Aaron Finch said a couple of years back when they had, went on that run where they won eight or nine T20s in a row or something like that was that um, having that... that that side together gave them a chance to gel and, and this should do the same thing this should do the same thing mm. as what they had in 17-18 where they started to find their way in T20 cricket so that's that's a good move there's also been a, an England Lions um, squad names for the four day they're playing at the MCG day night game on the 22nd of February that is old school by the way when was the last time you saw an yeah. England touring team playing at the MCG we, we've got to go back about five Ashes cycles and I know it's the England Lions mm. but a four day game at the G I mean put it this way Jeff if I were living in Melbourne right there right now I would not miss a ball <laughs> of a fixture like that that's right <laughs> in my hitting zone um, I remember going back a really, really long time. I think it was Rob Castle who made his debut against the touring English in 2002, 2003. And, of course, um, he's now, um, he was the Ireland bowling coach until a couple of weeks ago. He's now moving to the IPL. But, um, yes, th- those tour games. Another um, uh, tour game Victoria played at the G way back when was when Ben Oliver um, bowled beautifully uh, to the West Indies. And uh, I think um, they, they, they worked over Sherwin Campbell beautifully. Of course, Ben Oliver's now the, the boss of... Boss of cricket at, at Jollymont. Uh, he's the the new mm. Pat Howard. So uh, um, yes, yeah, so go, go down there and write a piece about it, Jeff. I insist. So which of these players is going to be the boss of cricket at CA in, in about twenty years time? Will it be Marcus well, Stoinis? Will yeah, it be well, Mark Steckerty? <laughs> <laughs> will it well, be no, Josh the, Inglis? Who will be? Well, this 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 actual this squad they've picked is a very strong side, and um, they, they've got a host of Test players. I mean, hmm. Enriquez, Jackson Bird, Marcus Harris, Usman Khawaja, Michael Nice hasn't played Test cricket yet, but will will do soon. Curtis Patterson, James Pattinson, Pekovsky is not in the squad now. Of course, well, I think he is in the squad, but he may have been. We'll come to Bukowski in a sec, but he was in, he was in the original um, team picked, uh, Steckity mm. and Stoinis. But yeah, there's, there's some uh, real talent there. And the, the side will be captained by Enriquez and, and Usman Khawaja as the vice captain, getting another opportunity to sort of fight well, his way yeah. back into test consideration. It, this this seems less developmental than more like the grizzled old pros getting wheeled out to, to try yeah. to prove that they've still got it. You know, this Proper is, Australia, eh? Yeah, um, this is the next best players who who aren't quite making it in the in in the test team or, or getting into a white ball team at the moment. I, I just said uh, on the way through that we'd return to Will Bukowski. We should do that now. So he was 
captaining the Australia A team, although are called the Cricket Australia 11. Maybe that's the, disti- the, the distinction. When it's a CA 11 and when it's a Caxi, you can, it's a bunch of kids. And yep. when it's an Australia A squad, it's uh, got a bit more oomph to it. Um, if you want to learn more about Australia A, <laughs> Google the greatest season that was, presents Australia A. You can get yourself an Australia A helmet via auction. Anyway, um, Wilbukowski was, was captaining the, the Caxi side uh, and um, hurt his head for the eighth time, eighth concussion. It was a freak incident. Those that were there said he just kind of got to the end of the run and, and the bat spat from the ground and, and ricocheted into his head. Um, with the handle and that floored him and that was it and given the history he has with concussion and, and it's a, a brutal history really when you consider the number of times he's hurt himself in this fashion and the weird and bizarre ways that it's occurred including a, a cricket ball um, coming out of an adjacent net uh, the, the original injury which was acquired playing Australian rules football in a sling tackle when he got um, smashed into someone's knee that caused him to miss six months of school as a 16 year old boy so this has been going on for a long time I mean yes we, we are huge fans of Will on the final word we feel deeply invested in the Will Pekofsky story but um, sadly after being made captain of this side um, you know and just having his 22nd birthday he, he's back on the sidelines yeah, and how many times can you have a concussion before you find that trying to continue in a game where people throw things at your head all the time is is not a wise thing to do? So I, I do worry that you know that that might be the outcome sometime fairly soon that we might hear that this this isn't a career that will be able to to happen. But that's that's not what's being said at at the moment. But you know the the main thing is for him to be healthy and for him to be all right. Um, so mm. it, it's just astounding how such a run of luck he's got. He, he got hit in the head with a door another time. It's like, how many different yep. ways can got you hit be in head, hit in the on head? His shield debut, uh, on his shield debut, he got hit fielding at mid-on. A ball bounced up and hit him in the head. Like the, It's rarely happened batting, I guess is the point here, mm. isn't it? It happened yep. in an under-19s game for Australia you know, three or four years ago uh, where he got hit on the lid. And a game for Melbourne in club cricket. And I reckon there's one other time where it's actually happened batting. Every other time has been... Anything but it's a yeah. So first and foremost, let's hope he's okay. Of course, he's had um, three mental health breaks in the last twelve months or so, where he's sort of stepped away from the game. So first things first, let's hope he's fine. But but secondly, let's hope his luck improves quickly because he he's a, a great talent, a lovely young guy, an articulate young man, and, and we want to see him on the on the international stage soon. The women's teams, Australia, India and England, have been facing off against each other in a tri-series. They've got one win apiece, um, so they've got to do another round of games where they, they each play twice more uh, to see who can finish top of the table, and then there'll be a final played after that. That's all happening in Melbourne over the next few days. Um, Australia lost to England in a super over. This was an extraordinary game. England were... were roasted at about halfway through I think at the halfway mark they were 3 for 40 after Mm. 10 overs and they somehow got up to 150 odd Heather Knight went absolutely berserk in the back half and then managed to keep Australia to a tie. It looked like England were going to win quite easily at one point, but Annabelle Sutherland came in on debut and started smacking the ball everywhere and got a bit of assistance down the order from Georgia Wareham and the likes and Delissa Kimmins uh, to be able to tie the game up. But then Australia lost comfortably in the super over. They weren't, just weren't able to get going at all batting in the super over. So that was a, a fascinating performance from England. And then next, next outing, Australia kept India to just over a hundred and um and were able to chase that in no time at all at least perry took four for 13 so real contrast in in styles but quite a big statement for england to come out and and play that that aggressive um, sort of cricket and to get that momentum
Yeah, I think uh, psychologically important for England as well. Uh, piling on 156 against Australia, then winning the Super Over, holding their nerve. Sophie Eccleston bowled the Super Over. Heather Knight said after that it was only ever going to be bowled by by one mm. player, and, and, and Sophie, the, the tall left-arm young spinner, I think she's only... Oh, gosh, is she even 20 yet? She's probably 19 or 20. Uh, and, uh, look, I... I don't think it's too bold to say that she's the best bowler in the world now, um, best in the women's game. She's an outstanding spinner um, and, uh, you know, was able to um, keep... I think they she kept them to eight in the super over and and uh, and um, the rest was uh, the rest was history. I think Knight hit two boundaries in two balls off Perry to, mm. to win that game. And, and Heather Knight, the England captain, has uh, um, betted her best score in T20 internationals in consecutive innings, and both have been at a, a pretty good clip. Of course, she has so much experience having played in the in the big bash throughout for the Hobart Hurricanes. So even though England have changed coach, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, it's not a great time to be st- starting a fresh era, but maybe because the expectations on this England side are, are relatively measured because of that, they're, they're playing with a bit of freedom here, and, and that can make them a, a bit dangerous. You, you often see with teams where the expectations are low that they can um, play without quite as much baggage, and we know England were carrying quite a bit of baggage around when they lost the women's ashes last year on, on home soil. Uh, by contrast for Australia, they're a bit ropey, as you say, coughing up 156 in the first game, but keeping England to 103. Perry, just magnificent, 49 with the bat, 4 for 13 with the ball. I mean, you know, this is, um, this is, a, this is the... Um, the tournament, you can just see Elise Perry on the on the run of form she's on. You can you can imagine a scenario where she does dominate each fixture she plays in. So um, it, it's building really nicely uh, to the tournament proper, which starts uh, on February the twenty first between Australia and India, and the best possible preparation for the big three as they continue this tri series. Yeah, and and some work to do for India because it seems like there's just too much riding on Harman Preet at the moment. Where if, yeah. if if she makes runs, they're competitive. Um, if not, not so much. I mean, they've got this prodigious talent at the top of the order. All these the the young three with with Pandey and Smriti Mandana and, and Jemima Rodriguez and and then Deepthi Sharma coming. In lower down the order, there's a lot of striking power, but um, they're not necessarily pulling it together all the time. So we'll keep you updated after that series has has been wrapped up next week. We'll go into a bit more detail there. And just a reminder again that we'll have a little bit more information between now and the next long edition on what we're going to do during the Women's World Cup. So keep your eye on that in, in terms of your feed the next couple of days. Darren Lehman had a heart bypass on his 50th birthday. Um, not a great way to celebrate uh, although I suppose a bit better than like Walter White, who had his 50th birthday at the start of the Breaking Bad series, arranging the bacon on the plate. Was that before he got his cancer diagnosis? The day of it. The yeah, day of. in the pilot of Breaking Bad when he finds out on his 50th birthday that he's got terminal cancer. So, yeah, not quite that bad, um, but still not great. Uh, Darren Lehman was um, watching his son, Jake, play, uh, where he suffered some chest pain. However, the good news, according to the statement we received from Cricket Australia, is that he's fine. Um, he thanks um, you know, uh, the Cricket family for all the good wishes today. There's going to be a bypass surgery um, undertaken, and hopefully he'll be fit and firing after that. But, um, yes, best wishes to Darren. That's, uh, that's not good news to receive overnight. Bangladesh. You mentioned this at the start of the show, Adam, playing a test match in Pakistan. And yeah. they've, they, they've broken this up in an interesting way. Walk us through it. Yeah, this is great. Uh, this is old school. So, uh, well, uh, it may not be for, for great reasons. Uh, so, essentially, they're playing two test matches in Pakistan. They've already played a couple of T20s. Um, this is part of the World Test Championship. Bangladesh haven't played a test match there since 03 against their neighbour. And, you know, um, the history, of course, um, is horrific. 
between these two countries, uh, based on what happened in the early 70s, alas. Uh, the the two test matches have been broken up by a one-day international. So it's, it's, mm. uh, it, it's something we haven't seen since the probably the 90s when these tours were, were, um, were played in, in such a way. But the reason they're doing that is for security reasons. They don't want to leave the Bangladesh team in one place for any um, extended period of time. I think both test matches are being played at Karachi, so they wanted to break that up by playing a one-day somewhere else and, and get them out of that um, single location. But, but all the same, that, that starts... On the seventh, I think it is the first Test match of that two Test series, and um, can't wait to watch it. Of course, we've had Test cricket back in Pakistan. Was it late last year when Sri Lanka toured, Jeff? Maybe it was early this year. In any case, we 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 have seen Test matches played there, but um, I think it's important that Bangladesh are going there. Um, you know, given the history between the two nations, uh, and this is an important sort of stepping stone on, on the road to hopefully. Uh, Pakistan being able to host international cricket and, and test cricket uh, more consistently in the coming years. We also mostly saw rain when Sri Lanka went there to play the test yeah. matches against Pakistan, so hopefully we'll get a bit more time on the field over the course of those matches as well. And Zimbabwe playing test cricket again yeah. as well. They, they haven't played a lot of tests in the last few years um, for reasons too thorny to get into in a couple of minutes, but they've, they're up against Sri Lanka um, and they put in a really good shift. Sean Williams made a ton, uh, got them to over 400. They set Sri Lanka a, a big lead in the second innings, um, although the Sri Lanka were able to bat it out, but it was a really encouraging competitive performance back in Harare, uh, the Harare away day, uh, back in action again. Yeah, uh, Liam Brickhill wrote a great piece about his family's relationship uh, to the Harare uh, Sports Club, the ground where, where they play international cricket there, which um, sort of drew me into this series. Look, at, um, I was at Harare a couple of years ago and there was a lot of positive energy uh, around about the idea of hosting more international cricket and test cricket at the ground there and I'm, I'm thrilled to see that that's taken place over the last couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, Sri Lanka won the series 1-0. It wasn't involved in the World Test Championship. Uh, Angelo Matthews made an unbeaten double ton in that first test. So Sri Lanka were able to essentially play out the draw when they were well behind the game. But yeah, Sean Williams, a player who uh, we saw at the World Cup all the way back in 2015, uh, has plenty of talent and now leading that side, now back in international ranks after having spent some time away from, from the national side between times. So look, um, it, it's going to be a long journey, much as we said about Pakistan before, about having cricket hosted there consistently. For, for Zimbabwe now outside of the World Test Championship to um, command the respect and interest of, of other bigger nations is going to be tough when they've had such a rugged uh, 10 or 15 years, uh, which has never really been um, on the rise. It's the, we, it's some green shoots, but most of the time it's been negative headlines coming out of Zimbabwe, but um, this was a, a positive, and, and let's embrace that. Let's keep watching that space. Uh, I think we've come to the end of our run for today. It's been a long run, but here we are. Uh, thank you to Ebony Rainford-Brent for coming on the show. Bad Producer Productions is the production company that gets the final word out there every week. Uh, thanks to CBUS, who are back. The uh, the bus is back in action. And Wisdom Cricket Monthly, remember to get their subscription offer. The link will be in the show notes somewhere or other. Uh, thanks, to you, Adam. I appreciate you, especially uh, with, with with this baby imminent, just this shadow looming over a city, <laughs> much like in the film Independence Day when the large alien no, spacecraft no, no. come to, to to destroy your life as you know it. We're all, it we're all very else. upbeat. We're all very upbeat. And thanks to uh, uh, people who have uh, dropped me a line over the last couple of weeks to listen to the show to um, pass on, on their best. We, uh, um, I say, uh, touching wood and, and, um, and with all self-awareness that we are as ready as we can be and uh, we, we can't wait for, for the arrival and I, look I'm, I'm sure that 
um, the baby updates will be interesting once we get moving and maybe I'll, uh, um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm sure at some point or another um, you'll get to meet the baby through social media once it's been born. So keep an eye out there. Who knows whether I'll be on the show next week, but Jeff certainly will be. Seabus will be. Um, the Wisdom Cricket Monthly will be. And if I'm not here, Daniel Norcross will be. So... It's set up nicely. Curiously enough, touching wood is a key part of how babies are made. Anyway, <laughs> it's. I don't think I have anything more highbrow than that to add um, to finish yeah. off the show. But so, look, I, I hope you're able to be here next week, Adam. Um, but if you can't, we'll we'll sail on without you. We'll we'll get the job done for the first couple of weeks on the sea bus. On the sea bus, and, and, and I hope that you will be with us next week. Dear listener, uh, if you want to sign up for a nerd pledge or support the patron campaign, you can go to patron.com slash the final word. You can send us a message through there as well, and we'll have more of your messages and numbers on the show next week. This has been The Final Word. We'll see you soon. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. There's some stories I can tell you. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS.